I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name's Thomas Jones. This week, the writer and filmmaker Jonathan Meads will read the piece he wrote on the Windsors earlier this year. A review of Tina Brown's book, The Palace Papers. It appeared in the NRB at the time of Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee in June, under the headline, Hat Pin Through the Brain. Before we get to the reading, um, Jonathan is joining me from Marseille on the day of the Queen's funeral. The Queen's Jubilee has now been thoroughly eclipsed by her death. Have your views changed at all since you wrote the piece, Jonathan, or intensified? Um, They have changed in a way which I think was not predictable. First of all, the worst prime minister in living memory has gone, thankfully, uh, having, among other things, lied to the Queen about the prorogation of Parliament. And the Queen has died. So one is left with a new rookie king who's been rehearsing for god knows how many years and a prime minister who may not be quite as terrible as johnson seems way out of a depth already charles king charles is um famously interfering and i think in this instance it it may be very much the good that he interferes he leaks all sorts of um opinions, like um, thinking that it's not a very, very good idea or a humane idea to send um, people to Rwanda. Um, It's not a great idea to shoot people in the Straits of Dover, um, and so on. And um, the Crown may come to have a far greater influence than it did during his mother's reign, very long reign, in which one of the extraordinary things of, of the crowds today and over the past few days is that they are celebrating or paying thanks to someone of whom they knew nothing. She, she was extraordinarily mute, and one would occasionally get some sort of hint of what her opinions were, subjects other than horse racing. But for the most part, she was a kind of blank on which people could graffiti their own thoughts. And sort of easier perhaps with her for people to pretend that the monarchy didn't have a political role or it was so it was purely symbolic, whatever whatever purely symbolic might mean. And harder to, harder to pretend that with, with Charles on the throne. Yeah, m- m- much harder because, I mean, he can't keep his mouth shut. And I think, as I say, I think for the moment that is a, that is a good thing. But with the change of government, which will probably come in the next couple of years, this might not be so clever were he to find himself in disagreement with whoever happens to be prime minister. And also we've seen, I mean, he's sort of famously more irascible than his mother, as we saw with that incident with the pen, which is some people have said is almost like a Mr. Bean sketch. 
he he did look extraordinarily like Charles Dance playing um playing one of his nasty roles, but uh, he 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 compensated for it by joking with some people in in public who offered him a pen, and he he realised that he he he'd um, made a faux pas. But I mean, you know, it's a faux pas made by someone who's got a suddenly got a becomes king has got to, is grieving for his mother and is traveling to all corners of the united kingdom and so i think i think eventually it becomes excusable and it'll, it'll, probably, it'll probably be forgotten unless he does another stupid thing your piece was announced on the cover of the paper with the line i mean it was a edi- editorial line not one of yours closing time for the firm do you think there's wishful thinking in there or could they be on their way out or is is the the transition as we as we're seeing it unfold at, at the moment suggests that the institution looks set to continue i th- i think at the moment the the the, the mood or moods uh, um in britain are probably so febrile that it, it, you can't read anything from them one will see in fairly soon probably pro- soon after her his his first um rumble with trust and, and from outside britain how does it look is it well, what are the french <laughs> well, thinking for example from from france uh, the weekly news magazine um, marianne um i think it was marianne or maybe it was le point i can't i can't remember um polled a lot of people asking whether they were jealous that france doesn't have a monarchy and uh, 100% of the people polled um, said whatever is there to be jealous of, and B hasn't Britain ever heard of the guillotine? <laughs> I, th- I think I think that gives you some idea of what um, French in, in general think, or the kind, the kind of French who read those magazines, who are yeah. probably the kind of people who read the LRB and Guardian, so on. Yeah, if you'd say that in Britain, you'd probably be arrested at the moment. So. Um... Oh, absolutely! I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do my best. Um, but, um, I, I, th- I, th- I think that I mean there, there are various points that that have come up occasioned entirely by the death, and one realizes that there's very very little difference between a royal wedding and a royal funeral. It's the the same panoply of um, color, heralds, trumpets, religiosity kind of um costume militarism and so on and and th- this is the inevitable and unchanging mise-en-scene of these of these occasions and what actually has caused the occasion is to some extent kind of left behind because you you, you know the endless travel shots sort of aer- aerial shots of travel through the suburbs of West London, sort of Hounslow and so on, going out towards to, towards Windsor, just like the shots that you see of a, a royal couple waving after their wedding to the crowds which come come to greet them. It's 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 the, the same thing, and it suggests that the the mob is sort of autonomous. It, it doesn't actually need; it only needs the slightest trigger to kind of go into action throwing flowers in front of Buckingham Palace or Kensington Palace or or wherever. The only difference is people are wearing black rather than white. 
Yes, I, I think actually funerals probably they are they are much more elegant. So if if one's you know if I pretend to be Anna Winter or something, I would go, go say, <laughs> say that um, yes, darling, it's um, you know death is so much more elegant. And we still, I mean, after all this, we still have the coronation of Charles III. I hesitate to say to look forward to next year, but that's I must, I must put it in my diary. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, we have that to look look forward to, and presumably that is still another weddings, funerals, coronations. It's all it's the you know it's the same same show. Yes, it, yes, it, it, it will be. I mean, I I would have thought one of the differences would be that um, Camilla, uh, the Queen Consort as she is now, will, will not pro- probably look as tense and edgy as she she did today. I think she must have forgotten her tramp flask. And while we wait, we'll wait for the for the coronation of Charles III. Um, here is Jonathan Meads reading his review of the Palace Papers by Tina Brown, published in the LRB on the 9th of June, 2022. Hat Pin Through the Brain by Jonathan Meads. A review of the Palace Papers by Tina Brown. A sneaked photograph from the earliest years of this century shows the teenage prodigy Wayne Rooney leading his parents out of the sea on a Mexican beach. They are about to move into an unknown world where they will, all three, lurch from idolisation to easy prey, from objects of pity to mean-spirited envy. The adolescent has a gift. The elders have his blood. Their fate is in their veins. In the eyes of the mob, the gutter press, the green ink subscribers to hate book, and the spite chorus that dances on reputation, they will soon be reckoned fair game. One false move, one Barney in a Croxteth pub, one liaison with a granny of the night. These creatures irresistibly recall another unusual family whose every move is in someone's long lens and for whom blood is everything. The Windsors, a.k.a. The Firm. Tina Brown, a smart ethnographer bearing a scalpel, engages with this dispiriting bunch as though they, like the Roonies of that photograph, have yet to evolve. The slice of world that is vouchsafed to the Queen and her many dependents, to whom she doles out annual performance-related pocket money, is skew, widdershins, fighting time. As they stride confidently into the past, weighed down by gongs that are no more than decorative, they greet yesterday with sashes and oriflammes, speaking in stiff anachronistic formulae standardised many years ago by the Queen Mother, the nation's favourite charlady, a grasping charlady, with a four million pound overdraft who believes she should be exempted from income tax and who owned numerous racehorses and five or six cars with what Cecil Parkinson called cherished number plates. The milieu of the firm, a name that unhappily suggests a cadre of tun-bellied enforcers, is far away from what its subjects, who are determinedly not citizens, see and know. What the firm glimpses outside its many compounds, palaces and shooting lodges is partial, specific to it. An endless parade of folksy performances and tableau vivant 
that might have been devised by National Geographic in the 1950s misrepresents the realm. These presumptuous enactments are at several removes from reality. Mute answers to the chronic questions, are you based here? And did you come far? Do not illumine their nation at whose tip, according to the absurd blood myth and liege guff, they stand. Their nation, of whose actuality they seem to possess only the frailest knowledge. Prince Charles, already well into middle age, was surprised to learn from a bibliomane that Charing Cross Road had once been the centre of the London book trade. He is constantly bemused by farmers using pesticides. What they do feel they know is that their subjects, the industrially injured with calluses like king-size buboes, the salt of the earth and their pneumoconiosis, the proud forklift drivers and the loyal company of chamfering machine operators, are pleased to stand to deferential attention for hours no matter what the weather and are proud to be just about decipherable in the blurred background of a majesty, mayoral, chain, lord, lieutenant, town, crier, framed photograph on a mantelpiece of honour in a spit-and-polish house just like all the houses of the house-proud little people they've ever seen. They know the scent of fresh paint of just crimped lawns, beeswax, cardinal red doorsteps. They're familiar with the lumber groan of an ancient loyalist curtsying. They make skivs of us all. They recognise the swoon in a fauna's eye, the brisk music of a colour sergeant's bark. They're touched by the public's fondness for plastic union flags in the drizzle. They believe that when it comes to Maundy arms, it's the thought that counts. They appreciate the fealty of those maimed in the sovereign's name who dutifully strive to give great forelock, even if the stump can't reach the hairline. They're dazzled by the gleam of virgin sanitary wear. Immaculacy is more than fetishised, it's sanctified. It is the obligatory condition of the sovereign or the sovereign's mother, the heir to the Virgin Mary, the carpenter's wife cuckolded by God. The Annunciation, according to the gleeful Roman poet Giuseppe Giacchino Belli, quote, Mary, eating soup for lunch, was still a virgin. Just. Gabriel, an angel, hurled by God like a bolt, broke through a window. These are the words he spoke to her. You're up the duff, in the club. You really must believe me, I'm here on God's say-so. He's the dad. Even though this is blasphemous, it both miraculises that birth and renders it rudely human, the screams, the blood, the placenta. The subsequent birth of a sibling is human to core, no miracle. The unfortunate is known as the spare, the next in line whose likely lot is to watch forever from the bench unless the heir fails in his reproductive mission or acquires a twice-divorced American. The princess of all our hearts would never have attained that title had she not preserved herself as a bespoke receptacle. With a euphemism to make the sentient wince, this prospective victim of an arranged marriage spoke of having to keep myself very tidy 
until, evidently, her prince came along. Here's another privately educated euphemism found in The Spectator, this time referring to the former Kate Middleton. She may still have her V-plates intact, the age-old requisite for future queen consorts. The equation of young women and toilets is gross and the far side of misogyny, but it's only to be expected in a tampophiliac family with a fondness for robust wardroom language, a capacious repository of bodily fluid gags and lavatory jokes, and a subscription to a prurient polarity, virgins or whores. Fair enough. The defenders of the faith need some respite from maintaining the laws of God, the true profession of the gospel and the Protestant Reformed religion established by law, God then returns the favour by being on hand to bless or chide when a decision is being made about the suitability of this or that late adolescent broodmare to be covered and bear the mystically endowed child. And if God isn't decisive enough, then the firm will also call on haematologists and award-winning gynaecologists. These days, members may marry out, but only slightly out, and in the prescribed direction. Although Meghan Markle is often on the point of entering the lists, she does not yet appear to be regarded as a mistake of the calibre of Sarah Ferguson and Diana Spencer. The latter prompts Tina Brown to remark... What a pity that the Queen, so gifted at reading the bloodlines of horses, misread so profoundly the Spencers' suitability to join with royal stock. Yes, in terms of pedigree, uh, they were flawless. Ah, the paramountcy of stock, the glamour of pedigree. The Duff stud book that the Queen consulted might as well have addressed selection through phrenology, the sort of science that the superstitious gullible firm have faith in. One problem which the Sunday eugenicist Keith Joseph would readily have identified was that many young, ill-educated women were breeding indiscriminately, so weakening the race. This was not restricted to sump estate CDs with Croydon facelifts. It equally affected the ill-educated from aristocratic or at least AB backgrounds. A second problem, blithely unrecognised by the palace, which may have callously reckoned she had served her purpose, hence the tardiness of its response to her death, was that Diana had become, inconveniently, more than a pliant vessel, more than a machine for producing an heir. She was glamorous, famous and willful. She was neon when the rest of the firm was a 15-watt bulb. Peter Mandelson told Charles that he was reckoned glum and dispirited. If only the stud book had gone beyond genealogy and recorded the malicious speculation, ruthless jockeying for favour and backstabbing that pervades the palace. From the firm's most entitled familiars down to its high-born nabobs and sycophants in waiting, all the way down, indeed, to its ill-paid secretaries and resentful menials, everyone seems willing to reveal the family secrets to Brown. Bullying, cruel sackings, evictions from grace and favour houses, cousins buried in psychiatric hospitals, Tupperware at dawn, 
adult princes with a nocturnal dependency on teddy bears, younger princes who were the very incarnation of the princes in the tower, though they avoided the smothering pillow. Stories, too, of the Parker Bowles family, providers of sexual services to the crown. Brown tells Andrew Parker Bowles that she doesn't hunt and doesn't fish. Real intellectual, are you? he said with a patrician sneer. One minute he's watching racing on the telly with the Queen, the next he's charvering his way through London's upper-class totty, including Princess Anne. When did this vigorous brigadier find time to get his soldiering done? Meanwhile, in front of him at dinner, his wife is groin-grinding with the heir to the throne, which shocks Lord Soames' staff in southern Rhodesia, or, as officials called it, Bongo Bongo Land. Brown supplies a useful guide to the conventions of aristocratic and triple-barreled adultery. The palace's employees will compete to sell unsubstantiated calumnies to anyone, mainly, of course, to the tabloids and the mob's blogs, to such emperors of the moralistic gutter as Murdoch, Dacre, his loyal valet Stephen Glover, and the blousy fishwife Piers Morgan, with their prying snout for dirty laundry and ear for intercepts they know nothing about. As Vanbrugh had it, they have too much zeal to have any charity. They make debauches in piety as sinners do in wine. These base people, remarkably without a single criminal conviction between them, are involved, as Brown says, in a race to the bottom driven by ever-receding profitability. The Nazi politician Robert Lai said there is no longer such a thing as a private individual. Half a century after Lai's death at Nuremberg, Morgan, as editor of the News of the World, ensured that this was the case in Britain. Every parasite has its parasite, every grass has its grass. They take their cue from the top, where casual callousness is a weapon, a hatbin through the brain. Profits may recede, but the world's delectation of rich royal swill remains undiminished. Old trash, new media. There is no politician in the UK who would dare offend the sensitivities of the tabloids. In America, as Brown points out, no president, except Donald Trump, would grant access to the editor of the National Enquirer. The Blair Campbell secular benediction the People's Princess, was surprisingly more than a slogan. Diana preempted the media, the conduit to the people. She got over being described as a pinner hairdresser, just as Kate Middleton had to put up with some crass digs about her taste in interiors, being very Buckinghamshire, and her mother's alleged failure to adhere to Alan Ross's snob's charter on you and non-you. The Middletons have been further mocked for having commissioned a coat of arms. Certain patterns of behaviour recur. With a sure populist instinct, Diana gave the people what she wanted to give them in controlled doses, achieving a sort of privacy that wasn't notably private. She was manipulative, adroit and impressively active in determining how she was to be perceived. She got her retaliation in first. She taunted her putative tormentors. She used them to her advantage, whatever that was. 
It might be seeing off the rugby player Will Carling, a lover she was bored by. Carling's friend Gary Lineker warned him, that woman is trouble. The element of play in her dealings was perhaps an end in itself. She appreciated her power. She outmaneuvered Charles, who, as Brown puts it, spun furiously. He was just less good at it. The frail truce with the press, which Diana achieved, has not endured. The game she devised was peculiar to her. The editors she flattered and wooed were left bereft. The current kettle of circling guessworkers, sweaties on royal experts, remain the firm's antagonists. The family is regarded as no more or less than a quaint tribe, a target, a purposeless cultish minority that loudly advertises its exceptionalism. Prince Andrew, as international trade ambassador, complained at a Jeffrey Epstein party of all places, I don't know why people don't pay us royals more respect. Brown ascribes this boorish clot's problems to the Dunning-Kruger effect. People believe that they are smarter and more capable than they rarely are. The Duke of York may not be the only member of the firm to suffer from this syndrome. The proposition that the Queen is the personification of the nation is laughable. It depends on a belief in the sacralisation of an immensely wealthy human whose long life has been devoted to being rather than doing. I have to be seen to be believed. She has to be seen too, not only for the monarchy's enhancement, but for its survival. The volume of the firm's special pleading and entitled clamour is in inverse proportion to its usefulness. Even though it is constitutionally permitted to do so, it doesn't dare try to rid itself and its country of a squalid braggart of a Prime Minister, despite the fact that he lies to the Queen, probably harbours ambition for her crown, and comes fully equipped with a ready-made, impatiently waiting court of heirs, cousins and nephews, the personae of a dynasty. Tina Brown left England for New York nearly 40 years ago in 1983, more than a decade before Diana's death, before even the launch of the UK version of Hello, which set new standards in vacuous sycophancy and informed gossip. In those days, Northampton was apparently in the north, and Milton Keynes was a bastion in Middle England. The firm was yet to be struck by emotional incontinence and an embarrassing appetite for candid outpouring. No one yet needed to tell them to keep their traps shut. Brown's faintly proprietorial assertion, directed at Meghan Markle, that no one is a bigger brand than the firm, might have been on the money back then, that wouldn't have been expressed in that way. The word brand was applied to chocolate, dog food and toothpaste. Brown is astute and beady-eyed, but her focus is concentrated on the firm. Her range is straightened. She doesn't underestimate the extent to which caustic Britain has changed in her absence, nor does she underestimate the extent to which she has been changed by New York. Yet she writes that the 2012 Olympics 
For the first time since the height of empire, Britain's capital felt truly global, the culturally effervescent magnet of Europe with the financial buzz of New York City. This PR guff precedes a weird shop-soiled account of the actuality of that period, uh, the 2011 riots and Charles' laudable determination that something must be done by him, Cameron's ineptitude, Clegg's treachery, the loutish Mayor of London's purchase of water cannons without the Home Secretary's say-so, the regeneration of areas through galleries, restaurants and fashion outlets, uh, usually chimerical. Brown does not look far beyond the lifers in their pinchbeck cage and the sordid galere of dependent hangers-on staring through the bars. Secular confessors, commentators, scriptwriters, insiders, historians, informal advisers, scum-of-the-earth journalists whose expertise is in stalking and having astonishingly dodgy friends. It appears that the firm suffers the collective gullibility and heightened enthusiasm for flattery and bungs, no matter what the source. Toadying has been democratised. Sir Jimmy Savile, knighted for services to necrophilia, ingratiated himself with Prince Charles by preparing a guide on how the firm should react to disasters. The fireman was a pyromaniac. Charles, a repository of worthy, wrong-headed convictions, believed that Savile knows what's going on, which is one way of putting it. The Prince's Trust accepts gifts from philanthropists desirous of a gong, no matter that the philanthropist gopher may make threatening phone calls to former female MPs. The Tory party, whose current co-chair Ben Elliott is Charles's nephew by marriage, is similarly responsive to gifts. Cosy. A riled former Secretary-General of the Commonwealth, Don McKinnon, wondered why Charles preferred to meet dictators and not democratically elected leaders. The answer, obviously, is brown envelopes and carrier bags. Ghislaine Maxwell, plausibly the victim of Captain Bob's incest, famously introduced low-sweat Prince Andrew and his party hands to some similarly abused young friends. According to his problematic ex-wife Sarah Ferguson, he is a giant that dares to put his shoulder to the wind and stands firm with his sense of honour and truth. This is baloney of the order once spoken by the mendacious Jonathan Aitken. Rolf Harris, an ignorant nation's best-known painter, soon to become the people's paedophile, was commissioned by the BBC to make a Bayswater Road portrait of the Queen for her 80th birthday. Lucy and Freud's 2001 portrait is, on the other hand, simply a splodgy act of Les Majeste. Over the past 40 years, the House of Windsor has made questionable attempts to proletarianise itself. Much of the best work has obviously been done by the free-falling, downwardly mobile Prince Andrew. Even without him, the family no longer holds an unrivalled position of paramancy in the perilous society of influencers, pop musicians, ambassadors for tequila, philanthropists, light entertainers, and, in an exciting recent development, hereditary celebrities from football, reality TV and talent contests. The Roonies have evolved. They have adapted. 
so too of the Beckhams, the Kardashians, the Jenners, the Hiltons, the Vardys, the Ritchies, the Osbournes, the Winkelmans, and countless mini-dynasties of similar eminence. The bloodline is as vital as the winds is. A bereavement of self-knowledge is also useful. They are hardly aware of their ephemerality till everything turns to dust. That's a relief the firm can't share. Even in Californian exile, they will never escape the fate they were born to. Dramatic irony is the common humour and the bond of the new sleb class. A routine dinner discussion of the merits of Botox, Balayage, Bollinger, Bondi, a fragrance, may last for hours. Louis the decorator back from Miami is the favoured ornamental mode of their comical mansions. The slebs don't incur the mob's resentment because they aren't supported by the little people's taxes. Who advises or orders Kate Middleton to dress like a women's institute frump? The firm is not much more than a sideshow in this harsh milieu. They're not street fighters. They lack the nous and low cunning of Diana and our new slebs, quick learners all. It's their world now. Bling, glitz, flash. The palace press offices and advisers are recruited from a tiny segment of society. They're out of their depth. The prurient, hypocritical, red-top mentality leaves them incredulous and perplexed. They would rather not touch. When they do touch, they find that they are tiny pions in the dripping moor of cannibalistic brutes. Brown's excoriation of most of the British press is often exhilarating. No doubt Murdoch's treatment of her husband, Harry Evans, sacked from the Times, was at the front of her mind. Even without that spur, the verdict of guilty of just about everything would have been returned. Yet without a reliance on the press's archive, this would be a thinner book. Brown successfully accepts herself from the crowd. She is not just a strawberry blonde, but a vivacious strawberry blonde. She makes it very clear that she belongs to a higher form of life than the royal expert. Her immodesty is entirely justified. Her prose is glossy and slick. Her wit is deft. She allows her subjects to stitch themselves up with their own pomposity. The firm is sui generis. It is so odd that journalistic realism and reportorial precision can't hope to represent it. The TV series The Crown is similarly handicapped. It provides a stage for some fine actors, Emma Corrin, Pip Torrens, Alex Jennings, Claire Foy, but it pretends to actuality. It doesn't admit to being speculative. Its distortion dissembles itself. The sitcom The Windsors is much more the ticket. It's a cartoon. So, for that matter, a Craig Brown's savagely insolent study of Princess Margaret, Marm Darling, and 101 Things You Didn't Know About the Royal Lovebirds by Talbot Church, the man the royals trust, an alias of the late Willie Donaldson. Gross exaggeration, magnification, absurdity, grotesquery, a willingness to give offence, a taste for abuse and joyous ridicule, these are the modes most capable of capturing the brazenly bizarre opera buffa that keeps delivering. As well as Epstein and Maxwell, it can offer such bit players as John Bryan, Steve Wyatt, a hunky Texan oilman, and his biological father, Bobby Littman, who killed a young woman while tripping, 
Ruth, Lady Fermoy, Major Ron Ferguson's loyalty to the Wigmore Club, a massage parlour, the Queen Mother's lodged fishbone, James Hewitt, Kate's wife attacking Uncle Gary, Beatrice and Eugenie and their fascinators, Charles X, Whiplash Wallace, William's nightclub-owning friend Guy Pelly, Pippa Middleton, Peter Ball, the kiddie-fiddling Bishop of Gloucester, played in a brilliantly creepy performance of self-righteousness by Donald Sumter in the TV show Exposed, Ashley Cole and his unusual billet doux, James Middleton's dog-inspired mantra, Edward's ardent productions, Tom Markle, Meghan Markle, and so many more besides. The firm makes its own bad luck. It's as accident-prone as the Kennedys, but not quite as royal.